Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Mikko Järvenpää, Director of Development here at the Long Now Foundation. Our work at Long Now is all about fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. We found that the best tool for getting people to think about the long-term future is imagination. So that's the reason why we are, for example, building a clock that will run for 10,000 years inside of a mountain in Texas. It's a mythic monument that will continue to exist through hundreds of generations, but its most important job is capturing people's imagination, getting you to start thinking about time on grander scales and imagining what that far future may look like. You don't have to build or even visit a monumental clock inside of a mountain in order to start imagining what a better future might look like. One way to start building that capacity for collective imagination is through the power of storytelling. In this episode, we're excited to bring you three climate fiction stories from some of our favorite science fiction authors, Mark Alpert, Elliot Pepper, and Kim Stanley Robinson. Each takes a look at a particular moment in a possible future, a window into a world where we're taking action to address climate change, one of the foundational long-term problems. After these stories, we'll be hearing from a panel of scientists, journalists, and innovators working to make those imaginary worlds into something closer to reality. Before we hear the climate parables, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation's support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support makes possible our work of championing long-term thinking. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. We have a membership card ready to mail your way. It only takes a few minutes and after that you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Additional support for the Climate Parables comes from Charm Industrial, Living Carbon, Vesta, Lithus Carbon, and more organizations working in the climate technology space to build the futures we're imagining now. Your host for these stories is Amanda Font, producer of KQED's Bay Curious podcast and the host and co-producer of the series Audible Cosmos. Let's hear from her as she leads us into the climate parables. Good evening, everyone. Like many of you here tonight, I expect, I am a sci-fi enthusiast. I love reading it, I love watching it. And as McCarl mentioned, I also work on a series called Audible Cosmos, which is about sound from outer space. So you might call me a bit of a nerd. Uh, but to me, sci-fi as a genre feels sort of like magic because it allows us to channel our hopes and fears for the future into stories that have the potential to actually become reality. To borrow a term from the fantasy genre, it might be the closest any of us can come to creating a prophecy. I mean, back in the 1960s, Star Trek kind of invented the iPad years before you could even buy a cordless phone. So, Think of tonight as a peek into some potential futures that might be. In the first half of our show, we'll have three stories for you, adapted from some of the best sci-fi authors out there. Mark Alpert, Elliot Pepper, and Kim Stanley Robinson. 
I'll be your guide through the space-time continuum in each of these parables, which are set in three years, which also contain a creative solution to one of the greatest collective threats to our future, climate change. But as you're listening to these stories, I want you to also ask yourself, what could possibly go right? It's hard to be optimistic sometimes, but we're going to try and help with that. Following those stories, we'll have a brief intermission, and then we'll have a panel of experts come up and discuss some of the creative solutions that you heard in the stories, as well as some of the real science behind them. So we invite you to sit back and join us on this journey into a more hopeful tomorrow. Set aside your 2023 biases, uncloak your well-earned cynicism, and lean into the magic, possibility, and innovation that the future holds. Welcome to the Climate Parables. Our first story of the evening is Dodging the Apocalypse by Mark Alpert. And Mark will be on our panel of experts later. And it just so happens that the protagonist of this story is a journalist and former astrophysicist, also named Mark Alpert. What a coincidence. The year is 2047. Average global temperatures are the highest they've been in recorded history and the resulting disasters, flooding, wildfires, massive drought is unrelenting. Does that sound like a future you've already sort of imagined? Well, there might be a solution. Please welcome Mark Alpert. I'm in the office of the world's richest man. And I'm here to convince him to save the planet. Now, you've heard of him, I'm sure. Boy genius, billionaire, Eric Steele. CEO of Steel Technologies. 10 years ago, back in 2025, Steel made his fortune by inventing a new cryptocurrency, KCoin. Now, it's the billion dollar backbone that funds every one of his latest business ventures. I mean, five minutes of this man's time costs more than my house. And he's got his hand out. is supremely smug, wearing cowboy boots and a, a tight black shirt, and he's smiling, you know? Seems like he's always smiling. <laughs> In all honesty, I don't feel good about my chances of persuading this plutocrat, but I have a backup plan. You see, Steele's bodyguards patted me down before I entered his office, but they didn't find what I'm carrying in my pocket. I can feel their hands pass right over it because it's very small. Small, but powerful. Okay, let me back up a bit. My name is Mark Alpert, and I'm a science journalist. I used to write articles about astrophysics, but after the California Dust Bowl of 2029, the wildfires of 2031, I became a climate change crusader. I mean, when the entire planet is burning, what's the point of writing about anything else?
The ironic thing is, when I first met Eric Steele, I thought he was one of the good guys. I mean, he had a fantastic idea for a new source of renewable energy. Steele planned to build solar panels in space, giant orbital arrays that would focus sunlight on immense solar panels. You see, out in space, 22,000 miles above the ground, Earth, sunlight is more intense than it is down here on the Earth. And there's no nighttime. So it's continuous power, always on exactly what we need to get rid of gas and coal plants forever. I mean, each orbital station could generate two billion watts of power and send it straight down through the atmosphere via microwave beams. And then the receiver dishes on Earth could stream all that clean electricity into the local grid, rain or shine, because microwaves can pass through any weather. Now, I'm an astrophysics expert, so I knew Steele's project could work, and he said he'd lined up $100 billion of investor money to fund a dozen orbital space stations. But it turns out that Steele's space proposal was a sham. I contacted his investment partners. They said they hadn't agreed to fund the orbital space stations. Then, a month ago, I figured out what had happened. Steele was pivoting to a new idea. He called it Sky Cove. This new idea, Sky Cove, had nothing to do with clean energy. Instead, it was a, a luxury space station, a huge uh, ring-shaped habitat hanging in low orbit with recycled water and air and enough supplies for hundreds of people to live there for years. But exactly who would get to live there? Can you take a wild guess? Well, I discovered that the price for tickets aboard Skyco would cost $5 billion a piece. The world's billionaires could continue slow roasting the earth, and if things got really bad, say they ran out of water for their swimming pools or the masses stormed their estates, well, plutocrats could simply blast off to their orbiting Mount Olympus and watch planet Earth collapse from above. Steele was giving his fellow plutocrats an excuse to do absolutely nothing about global warming. So, I wrote a story telling all the facts, the price of Sky Code, the perks, all of it. The public outrage was immediate. Headlines in, in every language, demonstrations worldwide. Nobody wants to gaze up at the elite while they leave the rest of us behind.
after my story published, I got a package in the mail. It was from a whistleblower, an engineer in Steele's company who'd been fired, and he was just as pissed as I was that Steele had pivoted from solar power to Skyco. The package contained reams of damaging evidence. Evidence that showed Steele used coal-fired power plants to run the computer servers mining his cryptocurrency. Steele was funding Skycove with dirty money. He posed as an environmental savior while his cryptocurrency burned up more energy than New York City. The package also contained a flash drive loaded with software. The whistleblower said, all I needed to do was plug the drive into a computer behind Steele's corporate firewall. The software would duplicate K-Coins instantly, driving the price of his cryptocurrency to zero. The billionaire would be bankrupt in minutes. But I'm no saboteur. I I'm a reporter. I, I, I didn't want to keep the flash drive, but I couldn't throw it away either. So, here I am, in Steele's office, and he keeps shaking my hand. Finally, let's go. I put mine back in my pocket, make sure the flash drive is still there. He's invited me here to Space Corp America, his headquarters, because he thinks my article is unfair. He wants me to see his side of things. He starts blathering on about Sky Cove, the innovations, the advances. I mean, he's so excited, he can't sit still. Finally, I just cut in and ask him, what happened to the space power idea? Solar panels in orbit, clean electricity for everyone. Steele looks out the window, looks at me and says, the solar project? Well, just wasn't attractive enough for investors. Risks were too high. At the end of the day, it's, it's not my job to slow down global warming. That, that's the government's responsibility. You get it, right? It's just business. My heart is pounding. Dizzy and shaking, I, I point at steel and say, People like you control the government. I say, you use your money and your lobbyists to get anything that you want. Steele keeps smiling. Relax, he says. I mean, we can talk about this calmly, can't we? <laughs> so, I relax and I calmly ask him a few more questions. After the interview is over, I tell him my editor wants the files right away, and I ask him if I can borrow a computer to transmit them. Steele nods, but he isn't listening. He's staring up at the sky. Steele's secretary takes me to the reception area 
and hands me a silver laptop. I load the flash drive. All I have to do is hit enter and trillions of dollars worth of Steele's cryptocurrency will evaporate. Just like all the lakes and glaciers and species for the last 100 years. If I hit enter, Sky Cove gets grounded. His coal factories in Russia go silent. Financial institutions would, would teeter, maybe collapse. If I had entered, it's also the end of me as a journalist. Or, or I could leave, do nothing, just write my story and, and, and hope for change. You know, everyone keeps saying it, it feels like the world is ending. But I think it depends on who's the author. Too long I've been writing epilogues and, and elegies. It's time for a new story. But I'm going to introduce our next story. It's called Victory Condition. This one's by Elliot Pepper. Picture yourself in San Francisco. That's the easy part. Now, the year is 2171. And it's been a long and uphill battle, but humanity has finally relearned to live in tandem with nature. We did it, you guys. We came out the other side of climate change. We did it. There is hope. Joining us now is Rowan Zambra, who in the year 2171 is the former mayor of San Francisco. And she was instrumental in turning that city into a future-looking, future-proof city of tomorrow. Please welcome Rowan Zambra. I stop and stare at a large stone spiral it's on top of a lookout point in Tilden Park. It's one of those places along the ridge where the world opens up in front of you, like a picture book. Across the wind-ruffled bay to the west, the Golden Gate Bridge still stands, one of the few historical artifacts outside the city's gleaming walls. Of course, the bridge no longer serves the purpose for which it was built. 
Now it's primarily a wildlife crossing for wolves, grizzlies, and antelope. When I stroll, when I stroll across the Golden Gate, I try to see it through the eyes of my great-grandmother, Gran. She used to commute past this exact point in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. <sighs> Gran loved this city, but she hardly could have imagined the single, vast, tree-like structure that we all live in. It rises from what once was once the Fillmore District, that's base reaching from Pacific Heights to Civic Center to Haight-Ashbury. Glass, steel, cement, laminated graphene, and living wood twist into, across, and around each other like a thick bundle of rope. Higher up, the main trunk of this city development splits into narrower and narrower branches. Each branch contains thousands of apartments. Built into this structure, there are also schools, hospitals, and restaurants. It's all contained in the structure. Narrow pedestrian bridges arc from branch to branch. Birds and drones dart through the tangle. I think modern San Francisco would surprise any visitor from the 21st century, but I think what would surprise Gran the most is what's not there. She'd fail to find the once bustling ferry building and even Sausalito, where she grew up. I begin to walk the spiral. A breeze blows across the ridge. Can you believe that in my 140 years on this blue-green marble of a planet that I never once left the bay? Oh, I've had plenty of good reasons to travel, but I just found breadth in puzzles rather than swaths of vast geography. Fresh out of school well over a century ago, <laughs> I was mystified by what foolishness governed public life. A dysfunctional healthcare system, a housing crisis, skies choked with wildfire smoke, Funding for prisons exceeding funding for education. I had a long list of complaints, but whining wouldn't help society. So I pushed for reform by becoming a grassroots activist. But activism presented a new puzzle. Better policies only work if politicians implement them. So I went into politics. I got a seat on the board of supervisors, and then I went on to become the mayor. Finally, I left City Hall and went back to school to study physics. At Lawrence Livermore, I was working on an early prototype of the fusion reactors that power modern cities, including San Francisco. But to make real change, I needed money. So I got into real estate. <laughs> I bought a long dead factory and Tapping my old network at City Hall, I converted it into an open market with community housing. Yeah, we used self-healing biobricks, carbon-sucking cement, and mycelium fireproofing. Then we leapfrogged into larger developments, attracting more creative and economic energy into the city. 
<laughs> there is the world as it is, and then there is the world you envision. Activist, politician, scientist, entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist. I'd been pushing the world to conform to my vision for what it could become. I finally realized I needed to empower others to invent their own future. And that's how I became what I am today, a teacher. Midway through walking the spiral, I kneel to push an errant stone back into place. High above, a golden eagle. Across the water, San Francisco buzzes with life. How many weddings? How many births? How many first kisses? And new beginnings are taking place. As I take in this view, I push myself to my feet and my joints complain bitterly. I don't blame them. They spent way too long above ground. If I were born today, I'd write a list of complaints as long as the one I wrote when I was young, a century ago. We still live on the brink of apocalypse. Environmental groups can't agree on which extinct species to resurrect. How far back in the genetic code is enough? New designer drugs hit the street daily. Woo! Some of them are extremely fun. <laughs> but don't tell my students. I could go on forever, but I won't. A friend once told me about a trip she'd taken, and one detail in her story stuck with me. As the drone left off the, leapt off the launch pad, the little boy in the seat behind her screamed, Yes! Yes! And everyone laughed and applauded. And when they reached cruising altitude, and everyone went back to their distractions, she realized that boy was the only one who understood how miraculous their flight really was. Whenever life feels impossible, I just try to channel that little boy. I remind myself how incredible it is that San Francisco became an archetype of urban reconsolidation. I reach the center of the spiral. A spiral is the simplest form of labyrinth. To navigate a labyrinth is to quest within, feeling whatever monsters are slumbering in your heart. My thoughts spiral just like this path. I can't escape it, even in dreams. Worse, every time I solve a puzzle, it reveals itself to be a piece of a much larger puzzle that is San Francisco. And puzzles like San Francisco can't be solved only reinvented. Maybe that's the deepest problem of all. There is no victory condition, no ultimate triumph, no end game. Life can get infinitely better while remaining endlessly problematic.
And that brings us to our final story, Glacial Elevation Operations by the legendary Kim Stanley Robinson. We're just a stone's throw from 2030, and a massive heat wave has killed 20 million people in India, prompting the UN to create a new body, the Ministry for the Future. Their goal is to protect all living creatures, present and future, who cannot speak for themselves. And so in this effort, they reach out to senior glaciologist, Dr. Pete Griffin. If sea level rises even a meter, all the beaches of the world are gone. Seaports, coastal infrastructures, salt marshes, you name it, gone. And that's why I was back down there again in Antarctica, working on the seawater pumping experiment. <laughs> Even though it was obvious to all of us, it was a crazy idea. 10 million wind power turbines, thousands of pipelines. It was a fantasy cure, but someone had to try it. And our project had another season of funding. So we jammed the pump back into the water and ran the pipeline up and over the big white hill, laying those pipes along the ground because snow or ice is better insulated than air and warmer too. Now, when this water jets out of the outlet, it steams madly in the dry polar air before splashing down onto the ice and running away down a slope as we planned it, having aimed the nozzle downhill. But, we got surprised at how fast the water froze, pouring it out in quantity as from a sewer outflow or a fire hose. We thought it would take longer, but not so. In fact, newly frozen ice was stacking just meters away from the outlet, creating a sort of low dam and making downhill no longer down, and so that the unfrozen water was flowing back towards the outlet in the other direction. Shit. So. We hustle down to the ice dam and start trying to break it, which works exactly as we expect. No. And in the midst of our fuss, our colleague Geordi starts shouting, Eh, uh, I'm stuck, help! He was standing in what had been ankle-deep water near the outlet and was now ice that had him stuck firmly in place. Help, indeed. We started out laughing and ended up cursing as we tried to cut him free. Nothing worked. Sure, he wasn't in imminent danger, but in the race between the rising ice and the newly emerging water sliding slickly over it, the ice was winning. Pull him out of his fucking boots, I said. Leave the boots. So, Geordie was saved. But the problem and the boots remained. So we shut down for a week and rebuilt the outlet to emerge under pressure and snake back and forth like a windshield wiper. See how that went. And when we tried it, the water came out, ran down the hill, froze along the way, and pooled pretty well away from our outlets. And we got better and better at mapping where the water would eventually pool. And we came up with an estimate. 
We could deposit about a meter of water per year on any part of the polar plateau and have it freeze successfully. At a meter thick, that would be about one third of Antarctica. No way in the world. It wasn't going to happen. We had now established a trifecta of impossibilities. Not enough energy, not enough pipeline, not enough land. The straight-up seawater pumping experiment was a failure. It was a fantasy cure. The beaches of the world were fucked. The next Antarctic season, we were back. We were going to try something new. Project Slowdown. We'd done the calculations. Instead of pumping water out of the sea, we were going to pump it from underneath the glaciers. We'd calculated how many boreholes we had to drill, how far apart they should be, and so on. It's pretty audacious. You suck enough water from the underside of a glacier for the whole ice block to lose its water cushion and sink back down onto bedrock. It's the only thing that could work. So, there we were, melting and casing 20 boreholes into Pine Island Glacier. After that, we pumped up all the water we could. It didn't seem so bad. It can be done. Beach is still in existence, solves all problems. All right, doesn't solve all problems. It's bloody expensive. But let's not get picky. I mean, what's the monetary value of human civilization? Even trying to answer that proves you're a moral and practical idiot. So, there I was, doing the rounds, checking the holes were working, the pumps were pumping, the heating elements were keeping the water liquid, and so on. And you know what? Despite everything, it looked like it was working. It actually was going according to plan. Project Slowdown has been going for a decade now. 30 of the largest glaciers on the planet, all of them in Antarctica and Greenland, have seen expeditions to their crux points and wells drilled through their ice. After that, the water is pumped to the surface and spread to refreeze. None of this would be possible without the navies of the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom. They allow a village of their aircraft carriers to freeze into the sea ice year-round to keep the work going. Now, recently, our team flew to the center of the Recovery Glacier, where we had drilled a double line of wells five years ago. One of those lines was reporting that all its pumps had stopped. Out on the flat, we went to the wells that had run dry. Everything looked okay on the surface, but very quickly, the problem picked up by the automatic monitoring system was confirmed pump by pump, just by looking in the exit pipes and seeing no water. The holes closer to the center of the glacier were pumping less than the others, and in fact, most of them were pumping nothing at all. Down went the camera. We stared at the screen. Got to be blocked somewhere, someone said. Yeah, but where? 
Eventually, we get to the bottom of the hole. No water at any point along the way. You know what? This glacier has bottomed out. There's just no more water left to pump. <laughs> We've done it. The glacier will still slide into the sea, but at its old, slow speed. There's going to be a lot of people working down there for the foreseeable future. Maybe for decades. Maybe forever. A rather glorious project, we all agreed, after thawing out in the dining hut. We raised a toast to the rugged, black-cliffed mountains rearing up in the low sky. You just do what you have to in an ongoing improvisation and try to survive if you can. The future is now, and we're about to be joined by our panel of experts who are here to take us from these fictional worlds we heard about into some of the real science, engineering, and politics behind them. Wade Gibbs is editorial director of the Climate Parables series at Anthropocene Magazine and a former senior writer at Scientific American, and he'll be moderating this panel. Welcome, Wade. Thank you, Amanda. Come on up, everybody, all three of you, our willing contestants for the science game show. It's so wonderful to see you know, these parables come to life through the magic of storytelling. Uh, during the break, I was hearing lots of conversations sparked by these big ideas. Uh, now let's do a deeper dive into the reality of these ideas, the real science there, but also the real social and economic challenges. So let's get started. We're going to start with Mark Alpert. Mark is the internationally best-selling author of 11 science fiction novels, including The Doomsday Show, on sale here in the back, a climate thriller published last October. After getting degrees in astrophysics and creative writing, uh, Mark became a reporter for Fortune magazine and then an editor for 10 years at Scientific American, where we had the pleasure of working together. Mark's story was the very first one I commissioned for the Climate Parables series, and he cleverly wrote it in the form of a podcast script. So I definitely uh, encourage you to go check that out, read it in full at anthropocenemagazine.org. So Mark, Dodging the Apocalypse, your story, envisions construction of this massive space-based solar power plant in geosynchronous orbit, 22,000 miles up that converts the sunlight it collects into microwaves then beams it down to Earth 24-7 to an array of antennas in a field or floating panels uh, up to 10 kilometers across. It sounds pretty fantastical. Where did this idea of space-based solar power come from, and what's the current state of the science and engineering that's needed to make it a reality? Well, thanks, Wade. 
Well, as a writer of fiction, I'm proud to report that the concept of space solar power was invented by a science fiction author, Isaac Asimov, in the year 1941, published a story titled Reason, in which he described a space station that focuses sunlight on photovoltaic arrays and beams the power to Earth. And for decades afterwards, this idea inspired scientists who then thought, okay, is this possible? And NASA studied the, uh, the problem of, of is this possible in the 1970s and then again in the 1990s. Uh, and the big problem with the idea, at least back then, was the enormous size of a, a station that would be to generate gigawatts of power. As you said, you would need, uh, you know, uh, a power array that is, you know, kilometers wide, which would which require millions of kilograms of material and components that need to be lofted into orbit. And it was just uh, impractical at the time. But the amazing thing is that within the past five years, we have two things happening. We have uh, the new developments in photovoltaic cells uh, and new materials have really driven down both the cost and the weight of all the components that you would need for space solar power. And with the advent of heavy lift reusable rockets, you've also decreased the cost of sending them up into orbit. So this is now spurred an explosion of interest in this. We have uh, not only uh, in the United States, but uh, China is planning to uh, launch a demonstrator vehicle. Uh, Japan is involved. European Space Agency has a program. United Kingdom has a program. In the United States, the military is getting involved. The, United, uh, the Naval Research Lab is interested in this idea to power remote bases uh, that need electricity you know, out where there are no places to get it. Um, and I think perhaps the most exciting project of all is a team at Caltech uh, built the Space Solar Power Demonstrator 1, which is in orbit right now. It's 500 kilometers over our heads. It's a 50 kilogram spacecraft, and it is now testing the components that you would need. So for example, it's testing the unfolding of a very ultra lightweight uh, composite that you could use to create a frame for hanging you know, this power ray on. It's testing 32 different kinds of photovoltaic cells to see which are the best that would work in space for turning sunlight into power. And it's also testing the microwave beam that would be needed to transmit this power to Earth. It has transmission antennas and also receiving antennas on the satellite. Now, seeing how the transmission works, but the idea is that eventually you would direct those beams to receivers on, on, on the planet's surface. So um, basically within five years, as a result of these demonstrator projects, we will know whether this will work on a commercial scale. Wow. So it sounds like a lot of the pieces are starting to actually fall into place. What are some of the biggest obstacles or challenges that still have to be okay. answered? Well, you still need to loft millions of kilograms of stuff into space, and that's expensive. Right now, launch costs are on the order of about $1,000 per kilogram. Uh, what you really need to do is get that down uh, significantly so that now, you know, that wouldn't be uh, much more feasible. Another thing you need to do is you have to construct this thing in space. And you, it's so big, you can't have astronauts doing it like they did with the, the Hubble. You basically have to automate the entire process. You have to create, um, you know, autonomous space vehicles that could put the, um, the pieces into place. The latest thinking, the latest thinking is, and as you can see, this is a, a concept drawing here of uh, the Alpha 
uh, SBS, um, SBS Alpha, which was John Mankin was a scientist who was involved in the early NASA studies, and now he has his own company. And uh, this is one of his concept drawings. Um, and and a, what's very interesting about his ideas is they're trying to make it as modular as possible. Make it so that you're manufacturing in large quantities all the components so that it makes it cheaper, but also have it so that maybe each part of the thing has, you know, for example, each solar uh, photovoltaic array could have its own antenna for the microwave beam. And this way, um, there's no one point of failure, no single point of failure. Um, you could have micrometeorites uh, destroy part of this, and yet the, it would still deliver all that power down to the ground station. You know, so that's that's the thing. And then the other thing is, you, we need to keep the enthusiasm going for this project, for, for big ideas in general, because global warming is a big problem. It's going to need big ideas to solve, and it's going to need all of us. You know, we can't rely on just government. We can't rely on just business to do. We all got to get involved. And that's why I started writing books about this, because I thought, you know, we got to get art involved. We got to get that amount of excitement. And that, that's why I'm so happy to see everyone here, because it shows people find this important and interesting and they want to get involved. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mark. Great. Now, Kelly, it's so great to have you here because you bring another, uh, you know, crucial perspective to this uh, discussion with your deep expertise in climate policy. Right, so I want to introduce a little bit about Kelly. Kelly leads the nonprofit Silver Lining, which she founded in 2018 to promote scientific research, science-based policy, and international cooperation on near-term climate risks and on rapid responses to climate change. And before that, she had a successful career as a tech entrepreneur. Now, you've worked with the Ocean Conservancy on ocean climate risks and with Lawrence Livermore Lab on commercial prospects for fusion energy, which are two things you do not typically see on the same resume. Uh, and you now serve as a member of the President's Circle of the National Academy of Sciences and as an advisor to a startup, Dendra Systems, that is combining drones with AI to help restore natural ecosystems. So Kelly, I want to ask you about Elliot Pepper's story, Victory Condition, which envisions major project, uh, progress over the next century and a half in two of these areas you've worked on, fusion energy, which powers all of the cities in Elliot's story, and ecosystem restoration, uh, which appears in the story as a rewilding of lands right outside these massively reconsolidated cities. What do you think? Plausible? What gives you hope? And what do you see are the big obstacles? Well, I was really pleased with uh, the story that I got and also the beautiful rendition of it. But um, because I think uh, both of those particular things I feel quite bullish about. And um, fusion energy, I started looking at uh, a while back because it looked like a high leverage point for clean energy of the future, but a very non-linear one because fusion energy is always 20 years away. So, um, so I started working with Lawrence Livermore and they talked to me about um, the evolution of what happened there since they started in the 90s because uh, from the time they started till the time I got there, there had been big disruptions in the technologies that were inputting to their process, which were lasers and uh, computing. And so in order to create fusion energy, you're trying to create the conditions of the inside of the sun, uh, inside of facility, which is a really hard problem. And at Lawrence Livermore, they do it with a giant laser array. They accelerate the laser beams and then they shoot them to a center of a giant ball to a single point where they're trying to create the conditions of the inside of the sun. 
And so the technology for laser is the technology for computing to govern that process. You know, each time it gets disrupted, you get closer and closer. And so, you know, that kind of disruption in materials and computing and things like this are inputting into fusion as we go along. So, and now, of course, you have, you know, quite a lot of money going in, billions of dollars of investment. And I know some of the investors in these companies, and at least one of them, a company in Seattle, said they're expecting to make big announcements in the next couple of years. So, we'll see. But, um, but I think there's, a, there's reason to be hopeful, maybe not in the next couple of years, but um, in a relevant time horizon on that one. Um, on the rewilding, I actually think, um, I know Ryan Phelan's here, and I, I think that um, nature restoration, uh, based on what we know and what can happen if you're, um, you're evidence-based and, um, and looking towards the um, native ecosystem recovery, it's actually very promising. And there are even you know, efforts in people's backyards in LA to bring in uh, sort of native plants, and then they watch the native insects and the native animals come back. So I think the real rewilding was also quite optimistic too. The part I was less optimistic about maybe was you know, how much of the consolidation of people into cities and that type of planning you know, all the way to the extremes of very highly pre-planned cities like the line in the Middle East, you know, which is a 170 kilometer line that's meant to house 9 million people uh, in a pre-planned way in, with clean energy and zero cars. And so I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things about humanity. One is that there's a sort of organic development to the way that cities thrive and San Francisco is probably a really huge example of you know that sort of organic piece that you need and the second is that the consolidation of cities I think this is a problem that San Francisco has that hasn't been solved is regressive it's very hard on people uh, especially at the lower end of the spectrum so figuring so that part um, I wanted to talk to the mayor and see how she figured all that out <laughs> Great. Well, let's shift uh, a bit and talk about your work at Silver Lining, which has been focusing on ways that we might intervene if climate change happens faster than the world can adapt. In um, another of Elliot Pepper's work, his acclaimed 2020 novel, The Veil, uh, postulates or talks about a controversial attempt to halt global warming by putting particles way high up in the stratosphere to reflect a few percent more sunlight back into space, kind of like what happens after a major volcano erupts. And climate scientists have been kicking this idea around for about 20 years, but now it's gotten a lot more attention recently with the National Academy of Sciences and other groups calling for more serious research into how this could maybe work and equally important, what uh, unintended consequences it might have, whether we change precipitation patterns or how plants grow. Um, or how willing countries are to cut emissions as steeply as they possibly can. What do you think are the most important questions we need to answer about this kind of climate intervention? Well, you, you raised a lot of them. And um, the first thing I want to say is that I think for everyone in this audience almost if, who was alive since 1991, you know, if you've experienced the cooling of the planet from this effect from a volcano in Mount Pen when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, and that cooled the whole planet. You're also experiencing it now because one form of this effect is happening today. So the particulates and pollution, um, they waft up into the low atmosphere, they mix with clouds in a way that makes them a little bit brighter. 
collectively that's cooling the planet. So we have a dirty accidental form of this going on already. And one of the groups that I work with, and they actually do technology work at Palo Alto Research Center here in California, uh, to look at how you might uh, brighten clouds on purpose uh, to produce a cooling effect in a cleaner and more managed way. To Wade's point, there are really a lot of uncertainties and really a lot of questions as to whether you can produce the effect that, that you hope to and what the side effects might be. Uh, what you're seeing here is that effect represented in the streaks of clouds that's created by the particulates from ships, uh, from shipping emissions. One of the things we're getting really good at is reducing those particulate emissions. And so scientists are anticipating that our current cleanup of particulate emissions will increase warming in the near term. And so this is something we have to think about in terms of the questions we need to answer, both for how this might work and what it might, uh, what it might do at, in this sort of inadvertent form now. Absolutely, thank you. So Ken, let's switch gears. Ken Caldera is a world-renowned atmospheric and earth scientist who I've known for many years. Uh, your research group at the Carnegie Institution for Science based at Stanford University has built sophisticated computer models of global energy and climate to see how they interact. And uh, Ken has also published pioneering research into ocean acidification and the effect of climate change on coral reefs. Uh, he's a longtime advisor to Bill Gates on climate and energy, and he now works as a senior scientist at Breakthrough Energy, which invests in sustainable energy and carbon rem removal technologies. So, Ken, I want to ask you about Kim Stanley Robinson's story, Glacial Elevation Operations. Uh, it portrays this last-ditch effort to halt catastrophic collapse of an Antarctic ice sheet by perforating it with holes and then pumping the water out from underneath so that the ice grounds on the bedrock below. Is there any precedent for doing something as audacious as that? And, and what are some other ideas that are being studied for slowing sea level rise due to melting ice? Um, well, I think one thing is just to be cognizant of is the huge scale of Antarctica. East Antarctic, the East Antarctic ice sheet is pretty much the size of the whole contiguous United States and the West Antarctic it's not as large, but it's super huge. And so as with solar power satellites, scaling things up to huge scales is really critical. And I think for, for that kind of scaling, uh, you know, the idea of uh, automation and machine learning and basically, I, I think we need to get to the point where we have the supply chain from mining to robot generation automated. And I think once you get that goal, then you can do things like build solar power satellites and do these massive kinds of things on an Antarctica. But I think um, just allocating the amount of labor and capital today to do that kind of thing would be really huge. I actually, I think the one worth putting the water on top to me seems more plausible that most of the West Antarctic ice sheet is, um, the bedrock is, is well below sea level. And, and the problem is that the ocean is warming around Antarctica. When that ocean touches the warm ice, I mean, the cold ice, you know, it melts, and then the seawater is coming under. And I think if you start pumping the seawater out, just more seawater is probably going to come in. And so really the challenge is to cool the seawater that's around Antarctica. 
and you can, and also putting the water on top will help also. So that would make, but the real melting is happening where the seawater contacts the uh, ice. And really, I think the only known way that uh, people think you could cool seawater, say within decades or something, would be some kind of solar geoengineering approach. I don't think these kind of local interventions would really do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and robots don't need boots, so you don't have to worry about the boots getting stuck, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, one, one of the things that I also have to say about science fiction, every, every human artifact existed first in the imagination, and if anything like this is going to work, it's really up to the fiction writers and the people with great imaginations to lay out the possibilities, and then scientists can evaluate whether it makes sense. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, let me build on, on your previous answer a little bit and, and ask you about this article that you wrote 20 years ago now. I showed it to you earlier today. This is an article Ken wrote with a bunch of other famous science uh, scientists, and they published it in, the, um, in Science Magazine. The paper was titled Energy for Her Greenhouse Planet, and it's been cited more than 1,800 times in the peer-reviewed literature since 2002. It's hugely influ influential. Uh, so in that study in 2002, you looked ahead 50 years to estimate uh, how many more tens of trillions of watts of new clean energy the world would have to be producing by the 2050s to meet the needs of humanity. And you surveyed a bunch of the technologies that were then just over the horizon, including fusion energy, including space-based solar power, including solar ge uh, geoengineering. I mean, uh, yeah, and solar um, bouncing sunlight back into space. And so now here we are in 2023, halfway to 2020, just about wind and solar energy have been growing even faster than experts really predicted. But a lot of things like hydrogen storage and nuclear energy and hydroelectric power kind of got stuck. And fusion and space solar are still just over that horizon. Meanwhile, worldwide emissions just keep on going up. So today, as you look to 2050 and beyond, what gives you hope that humanity is actually going to rise to the challenge of transforming how we generate, store, and use energy? If you told me it was year 2100 and we had a carbon neutral or a carbon negative economy and asked, well, what do I think happened to make that happen? I would think it was low, co low cost fission power. That fission just seems like the most uh, plausible technology that could be made cheap and run safely throughout the world. And so, uh, but I'm also a believer in not believing my beliefs too strongly, and therefore I would want to invest in a broader portfolio of things uh, to see what would work. But uh, I would, you know, my bet would be on fission power. I'm, I'm all for everything else, but... Uh, Fission is something that we know we can do. And you know, when solar was expensive, we created, or really the Germans thankfully created a big program to try to bring down the cost of solar. And I think if we had a, a similar effort on, on fission power, uh, we could have a, a long, long lasting, reliable source of electricity. Great. Okay, so let's, let's ask quickly, we have a little bit of time. Uh, just one question here that was submitted by someone in the audience. Uh, how can we get the funding, India asks, we need for these projects quickly enough? 
Any of you want to take a stab at that? How can you work for Breakthrough Energy? They, they have some funding. Yeah, what's, what's really tough, unfortunately, one of the things I've realized over the last years, I'm a physical scientist and only now start to see some of the political process. And, and you realize, oh, that I used to think, oh, the policies are made so that if actors self-optimize under these policies, it'll lead to good social outcomes. But now you realize, oh, well, the policies need to be in the self-interest of the policy makers or else you don't get the policy, which is why we see subsidies and not a carbon price and so on. And so, uh, but so really we need to make it so in order to get elected, you have to have good climate policy. And unfortunately that also means that you need to address a lot of people's more pressing problems like education and healthcare and feeling safe at home and so on. And so, you know, climate is wrapped up in a whole constellation of uh, social ills. Getting money out of politics would help. A big problem and one of many big problems. Yes. But, I think they, but I think they have to get solved collectively. That I, I, I don't think you're going to solve climate problem if everybody's got bigger day-to-day -day concerns. So, well, well, so we take this more incremental point of view. I, I do a lot of work on the Hill and, you know, so, so you sort of, uh, it's, it's a make-do environment. And within that environment, if you keep your expectations low, sometimes you get pleasantly surprised. And actually, I think what's happened recently with the infrastructure bill and the chips bill and the amount of a climate investment that went into that um, and, you know, that, there's a lot of genius in there and it's, it's embedded in red parts of the country in ways that are producing quite beneficial effects. So I think there, there are some ways to do things where you can get money going into the right places and then certain areas like nuclear need more. Um, but these are also been areas of bipartisan cooperation. So research and innovation, maybe I'm a little bit more hopeful that, you know, there are things we can do in the politics, even when everything else looks bad. Yeah. I mean, we need to remember what could possibly go right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and on that encouraging thought, we must uh, conclude, unfortunately. Thank you and good night. That brings us to the end of our climate parables. I hope you have enjoyed this mix of science fiction and real groundbreaking science, and I hope it has stimulated your imagination about the future and what we can do about it. Like Anthropocene magazine likes to ask, what could possibly go right? If you'd like to watch the videos of the climate parables, learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Andrew Warner, Justin Oliphant, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Special thanks to everyone involved with the Climate Parables live event, the authors, the actors, the animators, our amazing musicians, and the show's composer, Tristan Delige, for all the beautiful music between stories. 
I'd also like to give special thanks to our friends at Backpocket Media who helped turn these incredible stories into the performances you just heard, and at Anthropocene Magazine, who initially put together the Climate Parables as part of a written collection of climate fiction. Thanks to our sponsors, Charm Industrial, Lithos Carbon, Vesta, and Living Carbon, who are already employing some of these amazing technologies to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. We look forward to next time. Until then, keep imagining what a better future might hold.